me ask it in a different way. What percentage of your life is consumed with Jesus' cause? Christians know that this question could only be answered one way. I am completely a Christian. A hundred percent of my life is devoted to Christ. Christianity is not a nine-to-five job with weekends and holidays. Christianity is not a side hobby that we do in our spare time. Christianity is a whole life commitment. What will it take? It will take everything. Christianity is a mission which encompasses our entire lives. On our text today, we're going to see that some aspects of Christianity, when highlighted, make us uncomfortable. No one prays enough. No one evangelizes enough. Yet we're called to do it. So would you turn today to Colossians 4, 2 through 6. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the ministry of Christ, on account of which... I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. All of our lives is to be devoted to Christ. The mission encompasses Every second. Christianity is a mission, and it encompasses our entire lives. Now, let me just make this clear. No one here lives out their Christian lives perfectly. We all struggle. We all stumble in many ways. And yet, the call is before us. Whenever the subject of evangelism comes up, we think of every time that we did not evangelize. Whenever the subject of prayer is brought up, we think of every time we do not pray. None of us pray enough. None of us evangelize enough. But it is still expected of us to live a constant life of prayer and evangelism. If we had no room to grow in our prayer lives, however, we would either be Jesus or in heaven. And last time I checked, none of us fit either one of those two categories. So this message is not to impart guilt. 
this message is instead to encourage and to spur us towards greater faithfulness in the areas of prayer and evangelism. So our text today will be, will be divided into two sections. We're going to consider in verses 2 through 4, missional prayer. And in verses 5 through 6, we're going to consider missional living. So consider first missional prayer. In verse 2 of our text, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. The life of the believer is characterized by prayer. Prayer is not an add-on. Prayer is not something we resort to when we have no other answer. At times, when faced with difficult situations, some may say, now all we can do is pray. And yet that statement reveals an unbelieving heart, doesn't it? It's an attitude of when all else fails, pray. This is a passive attitude towards prayer. And yet the picture the Bible paints of prayer is very different. The Bible paints a picture of prayer as a first resource discipline for the Christian. We start with prayer, we continue in prayer, and we'll end with prayer. You know, when I first, when I first married my wife, I was surprised that she would pray for random things that I would not normally pray for, like parking spots. Now, when you live in Miami, praying for parking spots is a big deal. And I, I was thinking, isn't that, too, isn't that just too superficial? Should we pray for those things? But as I got to know her, I started realizing that praying for parking spots and things like parking spots were not just random prayers that she prayed, but she lived a disciplined life of prayer. So it was natural that among many things, parking spots were part of her prayer requests. You know, Indy often surprises me with a random request to pray. Can we pray? And it catches me by surprise. And sometimes it bothers me because, because it reveals my heart that doesn't think of prayer as much as my wife does. She will say, as she did in the mor this morning as we were driving to church, can we pray together? And I said yes. And we prayed, and we poured out our hearts to the Lord when we could have wasted windshield time. You see, my wife to me is an example of a disciplined life in prayer. Why? Because she lives her life as though she's always in the presence of God. You see, when we realize that, we realize that prayer is always there. Have you ever gone on a road trip with somebody you feel really comfortable with? Ten hours on the road, do you talk the whole time? You don't. You talk when you want to, when you don't want to, 
you're just glad you're in their presence. You're just comfortable being with them. And this is the picture of a disciplined prayer life. We are aware that God is with us, and we're often talking to Him, but at all times we are aware of His presence. When we think of prayer as a relationship, it changes things, doesn't it? When we think of prayer as a lifestyle, it changes the way we think of the discipline. What is being conveyed in this text is exactly the idea of a lifestyle of prayer. We live out our lives before the presence of God, and it is unwise and foolish to ignore our Redeemer when He's ever before us. A prayerless life is practical atheism. Our faith in God is often displayed through our discipline of prayer. Prayerfulness is a reminder that we are nothing without God. Prayerfulness is also a reminder that with God, we can do all things. Continuing in verse 2, Paul says, being watchful. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful. The word here, watchful, appears several times in the New Testament. A few times, Jesus uses this word as a rebuke to his disciples for not persevering in prayer, even as Jesus is about to face the cross. And Jesus does not primarily ask them, his disciples there is, to watchfully pray for him, even though he's about to go to the cross. Instead, he says, Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Jesus' heart for his disciples, while the cross and literally the weight of the world is on his shoulders, teaches his disciples that prayerfulness is victory over sin. Watchful prayerfulness is our strongest weapon against sinfulness. So sometimes when it seems like we are trapped by sin, temptation is too strong, Jesus would say to us, watch and pray. Sometimes when sin lurks and clings so closely, Jesus would say to us, watch and pray. Are you struggling with sin in your life right now? Husbands, are you struggling to love your wives? Ladies, are you struggling with dissatisfaction with the Lord, with what the Lord has provided for you? Young men and young women, are you struggling to be disciplined? Children, are you sometimes tempted to disobey your parents? Do you bring it to the Lord in prayer? Have you asked the Lord to strengthen your prayer? Is your prayer life 
Can your prayer life be described as one that is watchful? Friends, we must be aware that sin is often overcome through prayer. This is what the Lord wants you to know. He wants you to have victory over sin. And he has given you the tool to do that. Will you, will you be disciplined in your prayer life? However, the majority of the time that the word be watchful, sometimes also translated as wake up, is used it is used as a warning for Christians not to become complacent about the end times, the return of Christ. Matthew 25, 13. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the hour, the day, nor the hour. Luke 12. Blessed are, the, are, the, are those servants whom the master finds awake. Same word here. Find awake when he comes. Revelation 3 Three, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If we will not wake up, same word here, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Revelation 16, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, watches keeping his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. What is this? A picture of not being prepared for Jesus' return. Friends, watchfulness in prayer is preparation for the second coming of Christ. This is an age of prayer. One day we'll speak to Christ face to face. But now we come to him in prayer. We must wake up every morning watchful, hoping for the second coming of Christ as though it could be today. Sometimes we forget Christ will return, and that's because we're not being watchful. We're not preparing ourselves. Ultimately, we're prepared for the second coming of Christ by faith in Christ's sacrifice. But that, that faith is fleshed out one way through our prayer life. We're not often disciplined to look forward to the coming of Christ. We often, we often forget it. We're much like the sleepy disciples than like the watchful Jesus aren't we? Both our watchfulness for the return of Christ and our watchfulness in prayer are often marked by idleness and indolence. But where does prayerlessness come from? And I think that this is such an important question. Because if we're going to attack it at its roots, we must know where it's coming from. How do we overcome the spiritual apathy that is so common among believers towards prayer? Often we think that prayerlessness is produced by a lack of discipline, but that's just the fruit. At the root, 
prayerlessness is produced by a lack of desire. The discipline suffers because of desire. Friends, we often walk around numb to our spiritual desires. We don't see a need for evangelism. We don't see a need for holiness. We don't see a need for communion with God. And when these areas of our lives are lacking, we don't feel the pressure for growth. And the reason why we don't pray is because we don't understand the urgency of these spiritual realities. So let me illustrate it this way. When an airplane is falling off the sky, no one is thanking the Lord for that meal. Right? When an airplane is falling off the sky, no one wonders, should I pray? What should I pray about? When an airplane falls, is falling from the sky, everyone prays for delivery. Why? Because there is a deep desire in one's heart to be delivered. So that prayer is powerful. It involves the whole being. I saw pictures this week of Ukrainian believers kneeling and praying in the snow. Why? Because they have a deep desire for peace. Do you see the connection between desire and prayer? So if we're trying to tackle discipline, we're just, we're just concerned about the symptom. But when we try to tackle the desire, now we are addressing the root cause for prayerlessness. How are your desires? It's hard, isn't it? It's not like we can just say, desires are on. It, it, it doesn't work that way, does it? So how do we fix the lack of desire? How do we fix apathy? How do we work on desiring God so that we can go, grow in our discipline of prayer? And here's the answer. We pray about it. We pray about it. We tell it to the Lord in prayer. We cry out to the Lord saying, Lord, I need you. And sometimes I don't even realize it. Would you press this in my heart? Prayerlessness in the life of the believer is first overcome with honesty. Prayerlessness is overcome with honest prayers about the weakness of our desires. I've been really helped by Kyle Straubel, uh, a prof professor at Talbot School of Theology in this area. And here's what he says in his book, Where Prayer Becomes Real. Prayer is not a place to be good, it's a place to be honest. Prayer is not a place to perform, it's a place to be present. Prayer is not a place to be right, it's a place to be known. Prayer is not a place to prove your worth, 
It is a place to receive worth and offer yourself in truth. You see, the Lord is not concerned with our eloquence. The Lord is not concerned with our ability to chain big words together. He's concerned that when we come before Him, we pour out our hearts. So, sometimes that means, Lord, I want to want you. Lord, I desire to desire you. And yet, my desires are often not too strong or too weak. Would you help me? So, when you don't want to pray, tell God your struggles in your prayers. Why? Because God is the one who changes desires. We don't do that. We follow desires, right? Listen to your heart is a terrible thing to say apart from Christ. God changes hearts. He changes desires. He changes proclivities. If you don't know how to pray, here, here's an advice. Come to our Wednesday evening prayer meeting, and we'll help you learn how to pray. That's a safe environment. It's a small group of people that we hope to become bigger and bigger, because Christians love to pray, right? Where we can, we can be vulnerable and pray with one another. Often, we, we observe a short devotional on prayers in the Bible so that we can think about how to pray. So if you don't know how to pray, be with us every Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. in the fellowship hall. It's a great place to start. Let me also say this. If you don't plan to pray, you will plan to fail. Okay? So uh, what should your plan to pray, uh, to be disciplined in prayer be? I don't know, but your plan is better than your no plan. Okay? So here are just some ideas. Daniel prayed three times a day. That might be one thing, right? The Bible doesn't tell us we have to do that. But we may designate three times a day for prayer. Some people have designated time to pray in the morning or in the evening. Which one is better? Whichever time you're more awake, right? So some of you, if you try to pray in the evening, you start your prayer at 9 p.m. and you finish at 6 a.m. Hopefully you don't sleep that long, but, you know, you got the idea. Whenever you are most awake, right? Whenever your brain is, is fresh. Some people have journals. If that helps you, great. Some people have accountability partners. People that come and ask them, how's your prayer life? So these are just some ideas. But if you don't plan, you fail. So come up with a plan and stick with it. Okay, verse 2 ends with the words, with thanksgiving. Which is a good reminder that prayer is not just a list of requests and supplications. But thanksgiving should be the first thing out of our mouth. God is good. If he answered no requests, but gave us Christ, that's enough. That is enough. So our prayer should be filled with thanksgiving. Now, look at verses 3 and 4. I've been in one verse for this sermon. But we're going to move a little bit faster now. Don't worry. Now look at verses 3 and 4. Paul asks the Colossians for prayer. 
which is encouraging. Other than the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul is the greatest theologian the church has ever seen. He is the greatest missionary. He is the greatest church planter. And yet, he needs prayer. That means I, your pastor, need your prayers. Can I ask you, both selfishly and selflessly, would you pray for me? Because when I stand before you, I proclaim the word of God to you. And this is the word that feeds you. So would you pray for me that I would be faithful? And he asks the Colossians to pray for two things. First, he asks for gospel opportunities. Paul is in prison and he needs to proclaim the gospel. He could ask for the door of the prison to be open so he would experience physical freedom. And yet, he asks for a gospel door to be open. Paul must proclaim the mystery of Christ, the mystery of the gospel. And what is that mystery? Mystery is that Christ is in us. But Paul also asks, for, asks prayer for gospel clarity. This is one of the highest priorities as Central Baptist. Not only that we would share the gospel, but that we would make it clear. An obscure gospel presentation could hinder response. So we seek to make it clear. And if Paul needs prayer, I don't think anyone has had a clearer gospel presentation apart from Christ than Paul. If Paul needs prayer so that his gospel message will be clear, so do I. And so do you. We all can grow in clarity. So as I preach the gospel to you, you pray, you pray for me. You pray that God will help me make the gospel clear. But why is it necessary for the gospel to be proclaimed consistently and clearly? Because it is the gospel that saves. So you see, at the end of the day, these are matters of eternal life. These are destinies depend on clear proclamation of the gospel. If sinners will be reconciled with God, if believers will persevere in their salvation, if the ministries of our church will matter for eternal life, if we're going to teach our children the faith of their fathers, we must proclaim the gospel consistently and clearly. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, for the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The gospel is powerful, and the gospel saves. Now, you may be sitting here among us, and you may be saying, but what is the gospel? Friend, the gospel is the message that there is a good God, a God who loves the world, a God who created all things out of the overflow of his love that includes all things created that includes you 
That's good news. We don't live in an aimless universe without purpose. We live in a universe where there is a God. And God is the goal. But this good news is followed by bad news. Early on, our first father, Adam, sinned. He did not trust God. He did not believe God. He was engulfed with pride. And he disobeyed God when he had all things to enjoy. Along with Adam, we have all sin. That is evidence because we're born selfish. And that is made evidence in our lives day in and day out as we choose often ourselves, the world, over God. But remember, God is good. And although our sin against Him should create an eternal separation from Him, God in His mercy bridges that gap through the person of His Son. The Bible says that He is sinless and spotless. He lived a perfect life. And yet he died. He died a guilty man. He died a condemned death. But the condemnation was not his. The condemnation was yours and mine. And God, when he looks at his, at his son on the cross, he's pleased with that sacrifice. And every drop from the cup of wrath that should be poured on us is instead poured on Christ. That's the gospel. And friends, anyone who will believe that message, who would say, Lord, I have sinned against you, but I believe that Jesus died for me, will with Christ resurrect right now, spiritually, in the future, even your body will be made new. And friends, this is the message that will lead you to heaven. Nothing else will. No amounts of money you give away to the poor, no amount of Bible verses you memorize. No amount of Sunday mornings you go to church. Not amount of years you are faithful to your wife. It is only the sacrifice of Christ that will save you from your sin, that will save you from eternal condemnation. And this message must be clear. You've been presented with this message today. It is your responsibility to believe in it, to receive it, and to allow God to change you, your desires, from the inside. We pray that you believe this message. Let us consider now the second aspect of this passage, missional living, in verses 5 and 6. In verse 5, Paul says, Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Walk and wisdom are themes that are often run together in the Bible. The idea is one of direction in life, purpose and pursuit. Proverbs 2, verse 7, God stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity. Friend, we live our lives before a watching world. And the way we live our lives matters. Wisdom is what we're called to display. Why? Because our lives are a representation 
of the God who redeemed us. Some people will only see the gospel as we live it out. It is interesting that Paul refers to this watching world as the outsiders. These are unbelievers. But the fact that Paul refers to them as outsiders means that the Colossians are the insiders. Right? And I would argue, friends, that this is church membership right in front of us. The Bible makes a distinction between those who are in and those who are out. There was a clear recognition of those who belonged to the church at Colossae. One of the reasons why we at Central seek to have clarity about who is a member of our church and who is not is because we believe that church membership is a way to proclaim the gospel. We are saying, right, we are the church and we live like it. Now, those who are outside, what are they outside of? They're outside of the church, aren't they? They're outside of Christ. Friends, there's no salvation outside of the church because there's no salvation outside of Christ. So if you have been flirting with the church, so if you have been coming but you don't want to commit, let me, let me encourage you to be careful because Christ died for the church. The church matters much to him. If you want to know more about church membership, would you come to me at the end of the service and I'll explain to you the process of church membership at our church. We would love for every believer who embraces the distinctives of our church to be united with us in membership. So I'll be glad to talk to you more about this. Remember what we have already seen in Colossians about the relationship between Christ and the church. He is the head of the body, the church. Paul says in Colossians 1.24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for, the, for your sake, your meaning the church, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of His body. What is that? The church. Christ is the head of the church alone. He suffered for the church alone. And friends, this is why Paul says that we need to make best use of the time. Because church, the time to bring others into the fold is right now. Interpreting Isaiah 49, verse 8, one of the servant songs in Isaiah, Paul says, so he's interpreting Old Testament scripture in 2 Corinthians. In a favorable time, I listened to you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, this is Paul's interpretation, right? Now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. P Paul sees God's purpose of redeeming a people to himself culminating right here this time the time to reach those who are outside of the church with the gospel is now tomorrow is too late there is a great urgency in the gospel proclamation there will be a time when salvation will no longer be available 
So when should you proclaim the gospel to the unbelieving world? Today. So I want to present three applications here. First, if you're apathetic towards the proclamation of the gospel, if you're, if you're apathetic towards evangelism, let's think of what we learned in the beginning of the message. Ask the Lord to change your hearts. If you truly love the lost, you must give yourself to evangelism. Can I challenge you to do one thing? Okay. Ask the Lord for the opportunity to share the gospel with one person this week. And, and let me assure you, He will give you that opportunity. And by the gospel, I don't mean simply saying, God bless you. By sharing the gospel, I mean a presentation of the death and resurrection of Christ and a call to faith and repentance. Would you pray for that? Would you pray for an opportunity to share the gospel? One. You can pray for more. But would you pray for at least one? Second, if you're afraid of evangelism, which is different, right? So I just addressed apathy. Now afraid. If you're afraid of evangelism, I think we can really help you. At Central Baptist, we're really trying to reach the community around us. So we have some ministries that are designed to help us interact with unbelievers. So on a weekly basis, we have a, a softball league. And if you, are, if you enjoy sports, and if you would like to be in a league and play with fellow believers and unbelievers and have an opportunity to interact with them and share the gospel with them, you can speak to Gary Togo right here. He'll be glad to tell you about the softball league. I know that because that was the first thing that he told me about when I met him. But I told him, huh, I, you don't want your pastor to play softball with you. If it was a soccer league, that would be a different issue. So bi-monthly, we have Oasis moms that meets in this very place. Many women who are believers and many who are not. So you, there's so many ways you can help. Would you speak to Christina Peterson um, about an opportunity to help in that ministry so that you can have opportunities to speak the gospel? Monthly, we prepare a meal for FIT students. And we go and we share the gospel with them in different ways, right? Uh, we, we try to do it in ways that we'll be invited back, right? And that we'll bring them here. But we do that monthly. If you'd like to be a part of that, you can talk to me. I'll be glad. I'll be glad to help you connect with that ministry. Other opportunities. Our children need to hear the gospel. So here's a great way, right? I, I'll give you this one. Here's a great way for you to overcome your fear of sharing the gospel. You can have at it with my son, okay? I'll, I'll let you just have him, okay? And you can just over and over share the gospel with him. And you can do it in English, in Portuguese, and Spanish, and he'll, he'll understand all three of them. But the problem is not just understanding. The problem is embracing. So would you consider serving with our children and sharing the gospel with our children? That is a great opportunity for us to impart the wisdom of Christ. So I addressed if you're apathetic, if you're afraid. But now 
Third, friend, if you're here with us today and you already understand the gospel, but you refuse to embrace it, you're putting it off, you think you may just have enough time in the future to get things right with God. Let me warn you, that's a dangerous place to be. The gospel is a time-sensitive message. Today is the day of salvation. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. The devil is a devil of many lies. He lies about the word of God. He lies about the goodness of God. He lies about the power of God. But one of the most deceptive lies the devil whispers in our ears is that we have all the time in the world. We don't. Our lives are like a fleeting breath. We're here today and gone tomorrow. Christ is calling you today. This offer may not be available tomorrow. Do not believe the lies of the devil. Come to Jesus now. Come to Jesus now because later may be too late. One way that you can do that, that you can find the help in how to do that, is if you just take one of those connection cards and you write in the back a note, okay? I would like to know more about accepting Jesus as my Savior. And if you put that in the offering box in the back, I will call you this week. I'll meet with you this week. And we're going to read the Bible and understand what conversion is, what accepting the gospel means. We'll do that together. I promise you. So, so don't let this opportunity pass you. Another way you can do this as well is, chances are, if, if you talk to any member of our church, members of our church know the gospel. You can talk to anyone. The person that has brought you can help you understand the gospel. The sharing of the gospel is not a pastoral function in the church. It's an every member function. So, so we are an army of gospel proclaimers that are here to help you. Isaiah 55, 6 through 7 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will not just pardon, abundantly pardon. Verse 6, Paul moves from the way we should walk to the way we should speak. Friends, mature believers convey the same message through their walk and their speech. Godly speech is characterized by grace, meaning our words should speak of the free gift of God. But godly speech is also to be seasoned with salt. Now, in English, we don't really use this expression, do we? And actually, when we say that someone is salty, we don't mean that they're gentle and gracious at all with their speech, do we? So what does seasoning our speech with salt mean? I think it means we should speak in a pleasant way. Our job is not to insult with our speech, but to present the message of grace in a persuasive way. So yesterday, Indy and I were looking for a couch, right? And, and we're interacting with the salesperson. And salespeople are fascinating. I love salespeople because I'm very people-driven. 
And salespeople have to at least pretend that they are. And so I'm interacting with this guy. And, you know, it's data collection. He, he wants to get our information. And so here's how, here's how he requests our address. Oh, you just moved to this area, right? Right. So I just agreed with him, right? And then he says, where did you move to? And I guess he's asking me for my address. So, oh, here's my address. And I just volunteer my address, right? So junk mail, welcome, right? No restrictions. This guy, uh, this guy wanted my information. And he was being smart about it. He was being persuasive. He was being pleasant, right? For what? For money, right? How much greater is our interest when on the other end is not money but souls, right? It's the salvation of a lost soul. So our speech must be flavorful. Our speech must be seasoned with salt. Our, our, our speech must be one that people should say, I enjoy talking to this person. Let me hear more. It is true that the gospel is an insulting message. It confronts sinners with their sin, but we can't be insulting ourselves. We are, as Martin Luther would say, beggars who tell other beggars where to find bread. A speech that is seasoned with salt is a speech that is humble because we understand the grace, that grace is a gift and we are and we are in need of it ourselves. But a speech that is seasoned with salt is also a speech that is winsome. Because we represent a God who is winsome himself. There's nothing more winsome than God. So friends, Jesus tells us, you are the salt of the earth. But if your salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So do you see the parallel here? We shine the light of Christ with our speech. As we seek to draw people into the gospel by being humble and winsome. You know, this past Monday, we had our first FIT outreach, and uh, we may have overstayed ourselves. But the reason why we did that, you know, our dinner started at 6, and we're supposed to be done at 7. We weren't out of there until like 8.30. Um, the reason why we did that is because we wanted to be seasoned with salt in our speech. And we're engaging with the students. And they were saying, well, there's something here that we want to talk about. For some reason, I want to, I'm drawn to this person. That's, that's what we want to do. We want our speech to work that way. Why? So that we can share the gospel. So that we can win lost souls. We have a mission to accomplish. So we walk with wisdom towards outsiders. One of our church's value is a mission-minded ministry. We look for the lost and we go after them. Our glory days are not behind us. Our glory days are ahead as we walk towards heaven. And we do so by bringing into the fold more and more God worshipers. So why must we have a mission-minded ministry? 
because Jesus gave us a mission and we're committed to fulfilling his mission. Would you pray with me? Father, we pray that you would give us boldness, both in how we approach your throne of grace in prayer and how we approach the outside world. Lord, may we know that we are accepted in Christ. Therefore, we have confidence coming before you in prayer. And we have confidence proclaiming the good news of your gospel to a lost world. Father, where our desires are wrong, change us. Where fear controls, Lord, give us faith. Father, may we accomplish the mission that is ever before us. Lord, we pray these things knowing that you empower us for every good work before us. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.